So, part two of the story of Naaman. I hope you enjoyed this morning if you're here, and uh, I hope you're excited to hear what uh, we have to learn from God's Word this, uh, this evening. Now, you remember that the story of Naaman had a happy ending, and I don't know about you, but this is my kind of story. I like happy endings. I like when the cowboy rides off into the sunset. I like when the good guys win the war. I like it when the downtrodden panda fulfills his dreams and becomes a kung fu warrior. I like it when the geeky kid gets won over the school bully. I like it when the guy gets the girl. Especially if the girl's just about to board a plane and the guy has to rush through traffic to get her. What can I say? I don't like stories with unhappy endings. That's why I didn't like Titanic. And it's probably why I won't go and see the new Ayrton Senna film about the ex-Formula One driver who uh, crashed his car into a wall. That story was bad enough the first time I saw it as a 13-year-old. And yet I know, as you do, that stories don't always end with happy endings, at least in this life anyway. And that's especially true for one of the characters in the passage that we're studying tonight. If you weren't here this morning, I should point out that Andy preached on verses 1 to 14, and that's where we're picking up, or that's why we're picking up the story in verse 15. Let me quickly explain, if you weren't here this morning, where we got to. Naaman, the army commander, who was also a leper, hears about a prophet in Israel who could heal his leprosy. When he finally gets to the prophet, Elisha, uh, he is a bit annoyed because he was expecting an all-singing, all-dancing magic show. But Elisha doesn't even bother to come out to see Naaman. He sends a messenger out and uh, tells the messenger to tell Naaman to dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman is not impressed by this. But when he's finally persuaded to obey uh, the prophet Elisha, Naaman dips in the River Jordan seven times and his skin is as good as new. He is completely restored. And we're going to now pick the story up at verse 15, um, right through to verse 27, as Jenny read for us earlier. And we'll look at that passage, this passage in two sections. Firstly, in verses 15 to 19, we'll learn about a soldier who is cleansed by God's grace. And in the second section, verses 20 to 27, we'll learn about a servant who is mastered by his own greed. Well, let's begin by looking in more detail at this soldier who is cleansed by God's grace. I think the first thing we can say is that Naaman has experienced an amazing transformation. The words that he says to Elisha, the man of God, in verse 15 are remarkable. Look at them in your Bible with me. Now, I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. These are remarkable words because the Naaman of verses 1 to 13 could not have said these words. Remember what we learned about Naaman this morning. 
we saw him get angry and proud in verse 11 when Elisha didn't come out to say hello and when he didn't put on this fantastic performance to cure Naaman's leprosy. He was a bit of a know-it-all, wasn't he? He thought that there were better rivers that he could dip in than the River Jordan and be healed. And he was arrogant, wasn't he? He stormed off in a rage and had to be persuaded by his servants to dip in the Jordan River. He also didn't recognize the Lord, Yahweh, as his God. He refers to him as Elisha's God in verse 11. Naaman certainly had no personal relationship with God. So Naaman's words really are remarkable. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. These words suggest that there is something more to Naaman's cleansing in verse 14 than just his skin being restored. I wonder if you've ever seen the TV program uh, called Extreme Makeover. If you've not seen it, it's a reality program on which people with crooked noses and wonky teeth and pretty much any other physical defect that you can think of undergo major surgery to correct these problems. And this is all in the name of entertainment. And there's no doubt that these people undergo an amazing transformation, but underneath they're still the same person. They might claim to have a bit more self-esteem, but they're really just the same person on the inside. Naaman has experienced something much more than an extreme skin makeover. Of course his skin has been restored, but something inside Naaman has changed too. He has encountered the one true God. Now earlier in 2 Kings, we see more of this one true God at work. We see him cleanse a town's water supply in chapter 2. We see him bring a, a woman's dead son back to life in chapter 3. And we see him purify some deadly stew again in chapter 3. But how do we know that Naaman has, himself has encountered this one true God? Well, from his words and from his life. Let's think about his words first. The Israelites themselves couldn't even say Naaman's words in verse 15. They couldn't make up their mind who to follow, the one true God or some made-up idol. Flick back to the start of 2 Kings chapter 1 and you'll see exactly what I mean. Verse 2 says, Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. We continually see the Israelites, God's chosen people, scurrying back and forth between worshipping the one true God and false gods. And yet here in chapter 5, we have Naaman, this outsider, this foreigner, this non-Israelite, a Gentile, 
saying to Elisha the prophet, I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. And there are other words that show how Naaman is a changed man because of his encounter with God. You see it in verses 15 to 18, as he frequently calls himself a servant. This is a sign of his newfound humility. But it's not just his words that have been transformed, his life has too. In verse 17, Naaman says that he will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. For a former idol worshipper to say this shows that he has been radically transformed. He is not the same man that he was. This is a real change to the Naaman that we met in verses 1 to 13. Naaman has truly encountered the one true God. Also, look how thankful he is in uh, verses 15 and 16. He, um, he really wants Elisha the prophet to accept a gift for the cleansing that he's experienced. Now, I should explain here that Elisha isn't just being falsely polite when he refuses to take this gift. Uh, this isn't like the situation that you might have experienced yourself at home around the dinner table uh, when there's only one slice of pizza left. Okay, this is not like those situations where maybe Graham says to me, please take this pizza. And I say, no, 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 I, sorry, I, I can't take it. You have it. And he says, no, no, I can't take it. Secretly, we both want the slice of pizza. <laughs> but we want to get away without letting anyone else know that we want that pizza. This is not what's happening here. Naaman could offer this gift to Elisha as much as he likes, but Elisha would never take it. That's what separates real prophets from false prophets. Elisha wasn't the one who cleansed Naaman, so he couldn't take the gift. It was the one true God who cleansed Naaman. It was the one, the soldier has been cleansed by God's grace. Elisha taking the gift would be like one of our pastors getting a bonus on their pay each time someone becomes a Christian. Well, that's, that's not going to happen because they know, like Elisha, that it is God who cleanses people from their sin and causes them to follow him in trust and obedience. Naaman maybe doesn't quite understand grace just yet. Perhaps he thinks he has to pay for his cleansing. Naaman's changed life is also shown in his final remarks in verse 18. Naaman recognizes that there's going to be a tension between his work for the king of Aram and his newfound relationship with the one true God. He realizes that taking the king of Aram to the temple of a false god is not an ideal position for someone who's just started trusting in the God of Israel. And so he asks God for forgiveness. This sensitivity to right and wrong is more evidence that Naaman has encountered the one true God. It's an amazing transformation, isn't it? A proud, angry, arrogant, idol-worshipping pagan soldier has been cleansed by God's grace. Not only is his skin new, but he has been renewed spiritually. He has been born again. We can say that his words and his life are, were consistent. 
He says that there are no gods in all the world except Israel. And his life reflects this because he stopped offering sacrifices to false idols. Naaman wasn't just all talk. And that is a challenge to us who call ourselves Christians, isn't it? Does our life and our words match up? Does the life we live reflect the words that we say? You may say you're a Christian, but does your life match up to this? Does your belief in the one true God affect your decisions about the places you go, about the music that you listen to, about the movies that you see? Does it affect your behavior at school or university or at the parties you go to or when you're alone in your room? And I ask myself these questions too. I say I'm a Christian, but how much of a difference does it make to my everyday life? If our lives do not honor Christ, we need to repent of this sin, ask for God's forgiveness, and trust God to help us change. As well as bringing a challenge, I hope Naaman's life story brings comfort to you if you're a Christian. I hope that as you look at people you know who are not Christians, whether at school or university or work or family, and as you wonder whether these people could ever be saved, I hope that you'll think of Naaman, that you'll think about what he was like and what he became like after he was cleansed by God's grace. I hope that you will ask the God who transformed Naaman to change the hearts of your friends and family who don't yet trust in the one true God. Elisha's God is our God, and he is still cleansing people of their sins. How do I know that? Well, this room is full of people who can say that that is true of them. And it is my prayer that we would all be braver at speaking to people about this God and telling them of their need to turn from their sin and follow him in trust and obedience. So we've seen an incredible transformation in this soldier who's been cleansed by God's grace. He's been genuinely saved, and this is reflected in his words and his life. But now, sadly, we're going to learn about Gehazi, Elisha's servant, who has a different story altogether. Gehazi, as we'll see, is a servant mastered by his greed. A servant mastered by his greed. And we'll think about this a bit more by looking at verses 19 to 27. In verse 19, we can see that Naaman is in his chariot heading back to Aram. Gehazi thought that Elisha was a little bit soft on Naaman and that he should have got a bit of money out of him. It didn't take long for Gehazi's true character to show itself. Gehazi might call Elisha his master in verse 20, but it's clear that Elisha is not his master and neither is the one true God. Gehazi is mastered by his greed. We see this all the more clearly in verse 21 when we read of Gehazi running after Naaman's chariot. Gehazi was gripped by the idea of getting some money and gifts out of Naaman. 
And then we see just how greedy Gehazi is when he catches up with Naaman's chariot and lies to him. After Naaman asks if everything is all right, Gehazi says in verse 22, My master sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Gehazi is such a greedy guy. Someone once said that greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then hold on to it hard. We grab what, what we can, while we can, however we can, and then hold on to it hard. And that sums up perfectly what Gehazi is doing here. He wants to grab the silver and the clothing while he can, however he can, and he wants to hold on to it hard. He's completely mastered by his greed. Now, when we're talking about money here in Edinburgh, uh, we don't tend to use words like talents. Uh, And if you look at the notes in your Bible, they try to help by converting the talents into pounds and kilograms, which, again, I don't think is particularly helpful. Gehazi ends up with two talents of silver, but what exactly could he, could he buy with that amount of money? Are two talents of silver enough to buy a donkey, or a chariot, or maybe a house? We need something visual here, I think, to, to help us understand. Well, come back with me a few pages to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 24. First Kings chapter 16, verse 24. How much did King Omri pay for the hill of Samaria? Two talents of silver. And we also read that the hill of Samaria was big enough to build a city on top of it. So in those days, two talents of silver could buy you a pretty decent-sized detached hill with planning permission for a city to be built on top of it. I hope that helps you understand uh, the depth of Gehazi's greed. And poor Naaman has no reason to doubt Gehazi's story. After all, Gehazi worked for Elisha, the man of God, a prophet. So Naaman gives Gehazi the silver and the clothing, and off he goes home to Elisha. And then Elisha asks the question that uh, parents have been asking teenagers for centuries. Where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi gives the answer that teenagers have been giving their parents for centuries. I didn't go anywhere. Which is, of course, another lie. Not the teenagers, but Gehazi. He's already lied to Naaman, and now he's lying to Elisha. Which is stupid. It's it's one thing to lie to, uh, um, to uh, to Naaman, the army commander, but Gehazi can't trick Elisha, the prophet, as we see in verse 26. Was not my spirit with you when the man, that is Naaman, got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maidservants? This part of the story is similar to Genesis chapter 3 when God asks Adam where he's been just after Adam and Eve 
ate the fruit from the tree. And like Adam and Eve before him, Gehazi has been seriously caught out. Not only has Elisha described word for word what Gehazi took from Naaman, but it seems that he even knows what Gehazi would have spent his money on. This is a bad situation for Gehazi to be in. His sin has been found out and his wicked plan has failed miserably. But how do we know if we're mastered by greed like Gehazi? Well, here's a test for you. What are the things that you daydream about? That'll give you a good idea. Maybe you're like Gehazi and you're greedy for more money and more clothes. Maybe you look at people who have more money and more clothes than you and you are wildly jealous. And that's where greed starts from, doesn't it? You start off by being discontent with what you have. And before long, you're daydreaming about what course you could study so that you could get a job in order to get more clothes and get yourself out of these old clothes. I feel that struggle too. Each time I open the property pages in the Scotsman and I see an advertisement with my friend's photograph in it and his name and his job title, associate director, and I think of the clothes that he wears and the car that he drives and the house that he lives in and the holidays that he goes on, and I think to myself, why can't I be an associate director? And then I have to kill these daydreams because I realize that I'm starting to sound like an idol worshiper and not someone who has a relationship with the one true God. I think this is the main application from these verses for us. But maybe money and clothes isn't your temptation. And I think there are principles here that apply to you too. I think it applies to anything that we want too much. Maybe you're greedy for attention. Maybe you have to be the center of attention and that's what you run after. Or maybe you're not necessarily greedy for attention, but you are greedy for acceptance. You're maybe a, a shyer type of person and you'll settle for just being liked and you run after that. And you'll be anyone people want you to be and you'll do anything that, you want people, that people want you to do just to be accepted. If you want to know if you fit into either of these categories, check your Facebook updates for the past month. Or if you don't have Facebook, firstly, good on you. And uh, secondly, why not ask a, a close friend, um, someone you trust, who can tell you if you fit into these categories. Maybe it's achievements that you're greedy for. And you'll do anything and use anyone in order to achieve your goals. Success is your God. It could be sporting success. It could be academic success. Maybe you're greedy for alcohol and you'll do whatever you can to get it even though you're not old enough. Or maybe you are old enough but you misuse it. Gehazi thought that no one would find out what he'd been up to when he hid the money and the clothes. And maybe you think that no one knows what you're up to either when you're chasing after these things that I've just mentioned. And maybe you're right, maybe you are that sly. But just as Elisha knew about Gehazi's greed, so God knows about yours and mine. But it gets worse in verse 27 as Elisha punishes Gehazi by giving him and the future generations of his family 
Naaman's leprosy. What an awful punishment. Rudyard Kipling, the man who wrote the Jungle Book, also, believe it or not, wrote a poem called Gehazi. And in the last verse of that poem, he describes the punishment that Gehazi faced. The boils that shine and burrow, the sores that slough and bleed, the leprosy of Naaman on thee and all thy seed. Stand up, stand up, Gehazi, draw close thy robe and go. Gehazi, judge in Israel, a leper white as snow. What a horrible punishment to face. To have gone from serving God alongside Elisha to serving himself by feeding his greed. To go from having seen Naaman's leprosy cured to now seeing Naaman's leprosy cling to his skin. What a fall from grace. I imagine he would have traded all the money and all the clothes in all the world to undo this punishment. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing. We see God punishing greedy people in the New Testament too. In Acts chapter 5, God kills a husband and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira, after they lied about the price uh, that they paid for a a piece of land, or that they actually got for uh, selling a piece of land, I should say. They wanted to keep some of that money back for themselves due to their greed. Notice this recurring theme. God won't turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. God will not share his throne with anyone or with anything. You cannot serve two masters. Again, the New Testament is clear on this. Matthew chapter 24 tells us that we will hate one and love the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I heard a guy called Jay Moda preach recently, and he was brought up as a Hindu. Uh, but he has become a Christian, and his mum still remains a Hindu. And in her home, she has this little shrine with all her little gods lined up. And at the end of the row uh, is a little statue of Jesus. And after she's prayed to all her other little gods, she prays to Jesus last because she says that Jesus is the most important of her little gods. She is completely missing the point. He's not the most important God. He is the only God in all the world. And whatever or whoever that you've got lined up next to him needs to go because he will not be shared and you cannot serve two masters. Second Kings chapter 5 also clearly teaches that none of us have a divine right to God's favor and affection. In this passage, a Gentile idol-worshipping leper comes into God's family and someone who seemed to be in God's family is exposed as an idol-worshipper and is punished with leprosy. Maybe this is a message to some of you sitting here this evening who think that you are safe from God's punishment. Maybe you're involved in YPM or WePM or Scouts or Guides or Focus. Maybe you've been on a Christian camp And you think you're safe because you're involved in lots of Christian stuff. And you think God will be impressed with this. Or maybe everyone in your family is a Christian. 
Maybe you've been coming to the chapel all your life, and so have your parents, and so have your grandparents. Maybe your dad's an elder. Maybe your mum runs an SU club at school. Let me tell you something. None of that means anything. It all counts for nothing. None of it counts. Our parents or our friends cannot give us a piggyback into the kingdom of God. We ourselves have to be able to say, like Naaman, that we know there is only one true God and serve him alone. But how is this possible? Well, you'll be glad to hear that uh, we don't have to dip ourselves seven times in the water of Leith. No, it's a bit different for us. In those days, God used prophets like Elisha and Elijah before him to be instruments of God's word. And through the prophets, God warned his people and called them back to him to obey his commandments and to follow him alone. But the prophets also pointed to someone who would come after them, someone greater than them, and his name is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 say about Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ, God the Son, has come into the world to provide purification for sins, to cleanse us from our sins. And he did this by dying on a cross. And only he could do this because only he has walked this earth with a sinless life. And we know that his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father because Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is sitting at God the Father's right hand in heaven. If you turn from your sin and from this day forward trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, you will have eternal life. A lot of people reject this message because they think it's too simple. The old Naaman thought like that, didn't he? He wanted Elisha to come out and meet him and do something spectacular rather than simply following Elisha's instruction. A lot of people think that there is other ways that you can come to God. And again, the old Naaman thought like this too. He wanted to wash in a river of his choice rather than the Jordan River. Other people don't want to submit to God as their ruler. They don't want to serve him. They want to serve themselves. Or they're happy to believe in the God of verse 14, who does nice things like heal people's leprosy. But they don't want to believe in the God of verse 27, who punishes sin. And yet he is the same God. Let me be crystal clear. Naaman is a good example to follow. And Gehazi is a bad example to avoid. Naaman is someone who served the master, the one true God. Gehazi 
in his greed, served himself. Naaman knew the cleansing of God's grace. Gehazi knew the seriousness of God's judgment. Naaman's story has a happy ending. Gehazi's story has a tragic ending. If you're not a Christian, I hope that Naaman's testimony, the story of his faith, is both a comfort and a challenge to you. I hope it's a comfort to know that God, the only true God, wants so-called outsiders to have a relationship with him. You might have no church background. Everything that we do in this place might seem quite new to you. Or you might think that you have a past that prevents you from coming to God. Well, look at Naaman and look what he was like and look at what he became after God cleansed him by his grace. I hope that is a comfort to you. But I hope it's a challenge too. The God described in that passage that we've just read is the same God that we worship in this church. And one day, his son, Jesus Christ, will leave his right-hand side and return to this world to judge it. You'll face the full force of his judgment unless you've submitted to Jesus as your master and are trusting in his death and resurrection. I wonder if the story of your life will have a happy ending. Gehazi did not heed the call of the prophet Elisha in his day. Will you heed the call of Christ today? Let's pray.